This will be a fun study, fun study. And as the gals go through it in their study, there will be a lot of reinforcement. And there's very, very practical uh, stuff in, in this precious epistle of the great apostle Paul. Have you ever wondered, what in the world is God doing in my life? You ever wondered that? Why in the world did this ever happen to me? You ever ask that question? Trying to figure it out sometimes will cause your brain to explode. You really don't know. There is a, not a definitive answer from heaven or from the Word of God. And you wonder, what in the world is he doing? He tells us here in chapter 1 what his ultimate purposes are for every one of us. If you want to know what the will of God is, you have to search out the will of God. There are dozens of places throughout the Bible where it says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to start with that. In fact, we've got a paper that we keep out in the foyer rack back here, how to know God's will. It starts with knowing what he plainly declares to be his will. It's his will that we be saved. It's his will that we be sanctified, filled with his Holy Spirit, learning and growing and sharing our faith. There are many places that tell us what his specific will is in many areas of our lives. But sometimes we find ourselves in a circumstance not directly addressed in Scripture. What should we do? Pray. Pray. Once you have a foundation in God's Word of knowing what His perfect will is, you're in a better place to discern. In this situation or that, God would have me go this way or that way. That would glorify Him most. We weigh out the pros and the cons. We get godly counsel. We search out the Word, and we make the best decision we can, believing that all things work together for the good, that love God and are called according to His purposes. But I love the fact that when you ponder what in the world God is doing, uh, to be able to come to especially this chapter, and God start to fill in some of those blanks, and you wonder, okay, God is at work. He is moving. But here's what we find out from chapter 1. God's view of everything on this planet is long-term, not short-term. We, because we are bound by the chronology of time, the demands of time, we tend to be temporally focused. We have an issue right now. I want it fixed right now. And understand that God's perspective is far broader than you are capable of understanding. His purposes are infinite. They're not finite. You're concerned with the here and now. He's got his eye on eternity. All of this life should be a challenge to us to adopt his perspective because ours is so narrow, so selfish, so self-consumed, so limited. God's plan is always strategic and long-term. We tend to be tactically focused, which in military terms means to be short-term focused and not see things in the long term. I can see now, looking back over my life, things that God did 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago that now make sense but didn't at the time. You have to be patient. You're not. We are not. We are bound to this world. and We tend to think like the world does, all too often. And I think the challenge today is to think more broadly instead of narrow, more like God instead of fallen, sinful man. God's plan includes all people, typically not just us. I think it's a challenge to 
in this chapter especially, to adopt God's perspective, His view, because that leads to a life of peace, contentment, where your soul is at rest. And you can say, as the old psalmist did a, a long time ago in that hymn written centuries ago, it is well with my soul. I'm good in here because I'm trusting in God. I'm, I'm resting in Him. I want to be content. God wants me happy and fulfilled in the middle of His will and not my own. Paul had first visited this huge metropolis uh, on his second missionary journey, but he did it very, very briefly then, came back on his third missionary journey to a handful of disciples, only 12 in number, who didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Boy, that's limited understanding, isn't it? Did you know that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit? There is the Father, the, the creator of everything that is, the sustainer of all things. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to redeem us from our sins and to show us God, but then given us his Holy Spirit so that you and I are not without resource till he comes again. But that's a supernatural walk with him that's required. If I look at things only through my natural eyes, my natural understanding, my focus will always be narrow. It will always be on me. I won't be able to think broadly or to see, embrace the purposes of God in my life. Just a handful of believers that he first met. In Acts chapter 19, the story of that early church is found where it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe. It's not that they couldn't believe. They were not going to believe. You know people like that. So do I. I don't want anybody like that in the congregation this morning to have such a hard heart. They can't hear from God. They can't receive from Him eternal life and know how much we are loved by Him. I don't want anyone here to be in a position of refusing to believe. But they refused so much to the point that they publicly maligned the way, which was what Christianity was originally called. So Paul left them, and he took his disciples with him, had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years. That's an investment of Paul in the lives of these people. He, he was willing to stay there as long as it took so that all of the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That was what is today, modern-day Turkey, then called Asia Minor. But Ephesus was one of the hugest cities, the most populous cities, the greatest commercial city this side of Rome. And Paul was thinking, if I could plant the gospel there, It'll spread by way of commerce to the ends of the earth. Paul had God's long-term vision. It wasn't just this dozen folks that he had at Ephesus that he first met who didn't know the Holy Spirit existed. Once they got baptized with the Holy Spirit, they turned the world upside down. But that's what is required today. A church that is not just saved, sanctified, and, and, and sitting and observing all that goes on. It's a church that's filled with His Holy Spirit, who knows there's a Holy Spirit, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then doing the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's what is required of you and I today. Otherwise, we remain the church silent. A church silent is a church that is ineffectual. And yet God put us here to be salt and light. You know people that I'll never meet this side of glory. That's your mission field. 
you need to be praying for those people. Just pick one of them. Pick the worst pagan you know and start praying for their salvation. Get in their life. Buy them coffee. Love on them. Encourage them. Tell them about Jesus. Invite them to church. Yeah, stick the Holy Spirit on them. <laughs> Amen. You know, Paul wrote this letter probably oh, eight to ten years after his first contact with them. Uh, and, and to see they had grown so much, they still had lots more to grow. Unfortunately, they would become the church addressed by Jesus in the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, or chapter 2, excuse me, he says, you left your first love. So it's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to know God. We must seek to be filled with His Holy Spirit if we're going to continue doing the work of God. Paul would tell the Ephesians in the book of Revelation, he said, you guys have right doctrine. You're not a heretical church. You're good people. You're sound. You're doing a lot of stuff. But this one thing I have against you, and maybe this is the Lord speaking to you this morning, but you've left your first love. It, can hap it happened to the church at Ephesus. Paul established this church. Man, they had access to the greatest teacher besides Jesus the world had ever seen. And yet somehow or another, with right doctrine and right teaching and good people, they kind of fell away from the Lord. They left their first love. Jesus wants to be your first love today. Amen. Satan is going to try to distract you, not only today, but from now to the, for the rest of your life, he's going to try to distract you these days with technology, distraction, and entertainment. While there's nothing particularly sinful about any of those three, if they take the place of God, it becomes idolatry. It becomes idolatry. So in this age of perpetual busyness, don't get too busy for God, please. Don't fall away from the one who shed his blood that you might be saved, who loved you so much that he adopted you into his own family and set all of heaven itself before you. Don't get too busy for him, please. That's what happened to the church at Ephesus. We can't let it happen to us. The Ephesian metropolis was known for many things, but primarily amongst the unsaved community, it was known as the Temple of Diana there. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. They had a lot of gymnasiums, stadiums, public theaters, shopping centers called agoras back then, lecture halls where philosophical debate could go on, Roman baths and an enormous amphitheater there that could seat 25,000 people. They were into entertainment just as much as we are today. Obsessed with it. Worshiping false gods. Gods that they didn't know about, but they needed a sense of religiosity. So Diana would do. They'd go to her temple, throw her some nickels, and, and go home and say, well, I've done my bit. But they didn't know the one true living God. And so Paul went there knowing that if I could plant the gospel there, it is spread to the ends of the Roman Empire. He's not so much addressing, as he writes to the church 10 years after it's found, he's not addressing any false teaching so much as to broadly think more like God and less like man. Expand your horizons. Start looking at things not in terms of the immediate stuff you're going through today, but broaden your horizon out to see what God is accomplishing in your life. 
what he saved you for, what he saved you from, what he saved you to. Think more broadly than what you're going to eat for lunch in half an hour. You got to think past that. Can I tell you eternity is longer than today? Did you know that? And yet, tactically, we tend to, be, tend to be so focused on the here and now that we forget that God's in the long game, not the short game. He is less concerned about your comfort than your eternal future and glory. We're consumed about, oh, what happened to me today? Oh, the end of the world. Mm, it's probably not. Not in the scheme of eternity. So we tend to blow our molehills into mountains and forget the God who created those mountains, who created all that is in the universe. And we can trust Him. We can rely on Him. Think like God. Think like God. You're going to see in chapter 1 a bunch of important words that He mentions time and time and time again. Anytime God repeats Himself, it's something He wants you to know. And if we didn't hear it the first time, He'll say it the second time, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. It's not that God is, is into repetition because of his ancient age. It is because if we're slow to get it. And any, any elementary school teacher knows if you repeat it more often, they're more likely to get it than if you just mention it once. And so you see, for instance, one of the key words, chose. God chose you. You are part of the chosen. You're going to see predestined, but um. Can I just say, don't attach baggage to that word predestined? 1 Peter 1 and verses 1 and 2 clarify that term for us, and we've got to be biblical in our understanding. Well, regardless of what theological persuasion, theology is something that can lead you away from God, not towards God. In 1 Peter 1 and, and, and verse 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, that's us. We're part of God's elect. He chose us. That's all that term means. Strangers in the world scattered throughout the whole Roman province of, of Asia and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen. How have we been chosen by God? According to the foreknowledge of God. Been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. What did God know beforehand? Everything. He knew you were going to say yes to Jesus Christ. Ask Him to be your personal Lord and Savior. Confess your sins and repent of them. He knew that before time began. Thus, God can even before your salvation refer to you as part of the elect. It's comforting to me that God chose me because I wasn't particularly worthy of being chosen. I don't know about you, but I was one of those kids growing up through elementary school that was always the last one to be asked to do anything. I was the last one to be picked for, for Red Rover, Red Rover, you know, send the ball over. I, I was the last one on the base to be picked for the baseball game. I was the tall, skinny kid who was the geek, you know, the kid who had his tape glasses with tape and the pocket protector and the pens. I was that kid. And I, was, I wasn't chosen by anybody. To be chosen by God is such a wonderful, incredibly wonderful blessing. But I also, at some point in time when he was working on my heart, had to confess my sins, repent of them, and ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. God knew I would make that choice someday. 
So while I believe that God is 100% sovereign, he also holds us responsible for the choices that we make. So free will and the sovereignty of God are not two opposing theological positions. They're two sides of the same coin. God is sovereign. Just say amen. Amen. You are responsible. Just say amen. amen. Two sides of the same coin. So let's not practice the fool's error and the pitting one against another. Another word that comes up all the time in chapter 1 especially is God's will. Put in parentheses right after that, not yours. God's will, not yours. It's going to come up often in this chapter because our tendency is to do our will, follow me, and then ask God to bless it. That's the typical nature of man in motion. Let's look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints, woo, literally, the holy ones, more accurately, the ones made holy by God, in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In ancient times, introductions were always made at the beginning of the letter, so you knew who wrote it. I don't know when in Western civilization we started putting our names and address and all that stuff on the last page of the letter. Who's right? I wonder who this is from. Well, the, you knew it instantly up in, the, in the old days. Notice that, call, that Paul's calling as an apostle was the will of God. Okay, now let's personalize this. God has a calling on your life, but it's probably not to be an apostle. There was only a handful of those guys. These were the ones originally sent out by Jesus with his message in Paul as one born as though late in time. He had a calling to be an apostle. Your calling will probably be different. You may be called to be a housewife, maybe a welder, maybe a computer programmer, maybe a pastor teacher. That's a calling of God. It's not the desire of man. It's the calling of God upon one's heart. You can be just as called as an automotive mechanic as Billy Graham was to be an evangelist. It's no less important. If it's God's perfect will for you, then pursue that with everything that is within you. That is God's call on your life, that you are who you are by the will of God, and he places you where you're supposed to be by the will of God. doesn't mean that it's always easy. Can I tell you, it wasn't easy being an apostle. Paul was locked up and beaten and shackled and made fun of and run out of town. Just because God's call upon your life does not mean life's always going to be a bed of roses. It means that it is his perfect will for you in that situation for as long as he has you there. Whether it's an automotive mechanic, an army soldier, a housewife, school teacher, and God can even use pastors. What's God's will for you? If you don't know what God's will for you is, ask ask. Didn't Jesus say something like ask and seek and knock and it'll be given to you? I'll bet, I won't ask for this, keep your hands in your lap, but if I were to ask you for a show of hands, do you know what God's will is for you? I'll bet you only half of the church could raise their hands. 
The rest of you don't know, but you're not pursuing it. You don't know what the will of God is, so you just kind of are at the whim of circumstances. And you float here and you float there and you take this job and you go there and you live in this place or another. But you don't know what the perfect will of God is because you don't ask. You have not because you ask not, James says. You've got to inquire of God. How do you do that? Open up the word. Pray. Seek his face. Worship. Come to church. Get godly counsel and input. Not input from unsaved family members. Oh, they may be your mom or your dad, may mean well. You want godly counsel to help you make godly decisions. Does that just make sense? Get godly counsel. Not your best drinking buddy at the bar. Just not reliable there as a a place you go to for spiritual advice. Notice God's perspective in verse 1. To the saints in Ephesus... That's God's perspective. You don't look like a saint, and I doubt if you looked in the mirror this morning and said, yo, a saint. Most of us don't think like that. The word saint is from the Greek, a a person who has been made holy. It's not a person who makes himself holy. That's not what makes you a saint. It's not some statue that's been blessed by the Catholic Church or somebody who did miracles in a lifetime and was granted sainthood by the papacy. That is not biblically what a saint is. You're a saint if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been washed of your sins and filled with his Holy Spirit. That makes you holy. You don't, may not feel holy. You may not even act holy sometimes. But in God's eyes, from his perspective, you are are holy. Sometimes that's the only thread you got in life to hang on to. I'm a child of God. I may be a hot mess. I may be hated by everybody. I may be rejected by my family and loved ones. I may be a dork at school. I may be a failure at work, but I know this. I'm a child of God. He loves me and my destiny is heaven. And so what happens on earth for 60, 70, 80 years is of small consequence small consequence. Begin to understand as a Christian what's important in this life and what is not. Well, I didn't get the grass mowed today. Do you think God's up there wringing his hands? Really? The things that we obsess with are so temporal, so narrow-minded, so short-sighted. I want to think more like God. and I want to, I want to be more like him. I want to please him. I want to fulfill his calling upon my life. Notice there that it says in verse 2, grace and peace to you. Peace always follows the reception of grace. Once you've received the grace of God, once you've been forgiven your sins, what's the result? Peace. Peace. Peace comes from being saved and knowing who we are in Christ Jesus. It comes from knowing what lies ahead. What follows next in verse 3 is, starting in verse 3, is the single longest sentence in the entire Bible. It is 214 words long. Those of you, let me take you back to elementary school for a minute. Do you remember your English teacher one time said, you can't do that, that's that's a run-on sentence? Remember that? Where, you know, you were like in first, second, or third grade, and she'd ask you to write out a story, and you put a period at the end of the story, and it was like, you know, a 400-page story, and you didn't punctuate anything. It was, just, it was a run-on sentence, not allowed in the English language, fully acceptable in the Greek language for this reason. 
You don't put a period at the end of it till you, till you want them to stop thinking of this in terms of a whole. So he has a sentence that's 214 words long because you got to take this baby as a package. Now, you have, it's like eating an elephant. You eat an elephant how? One bite at a time. Well, that's how you have to take this. But he wants you to understand this is one big elephant. This is one big whole. It is about what God is doing in your life. This whole package is the God who controls the universe has a part for you to play in it. You may not know what that is, but you should be pursuing that. What does God yet have for me? How do I know that God is not done with you yet? Because we're not here this morning doing your funeral. That's how, and check yourself. Check your, do you have a pulse? Okay, God's not done with you. This is very simple. God isn't done with you yet by virtue of the fact that you're still here. You're still here. If he was done with you, you'd be gone. Your purpose is fulfilled. God has a plan for you. Are you pursuing it? Or are you making your plans and then asking God to bless them? There's a big difference between the two. It is our nature, our sinful fallen nature, because we're tied to this world, it is our default position to make our plans and then ask God to bless them. And then instead of God leading and guiding, directing, we see things the way we want them to turn out. We make our plans accordingly and then ask God to bless them. We do the things that make sense to us, but it is in an alignment with His will, His plan, His purposes for you. I want to walk in peace, so I want to consider all that He has to say beginning here in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. That's what, can I tell you, one of the many things God's accomplishing in your life is He just wants to bless you. Does anybody have a problem with that this morning? God wants to bless you. Don't fight him. Don't fight him on this issue. He has a will for you. It may or may not include your will, but if you force your way on this, what you forfeit is the blessings of God. You don't forfeit your salvation being silly. You forfeit your happiness. You forfeit your contentment. You forfeit the perfect will of God and settle for the permissive will of God problem with that is we reap what we sow sometimes, and that can be more painful than we realized at the moment. Praise be to the Lord, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where? Read it. In the heavenly realms. That's what's wrong with the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. Not only is it a lie, but it is earth-centered instead of heaven-centered. It says right here, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms. It is not on earth. Has nothing to do with your health down here. Has nothing to do with prosperity down here. God does not want you rich. He wants you blessed by being spiritual. Spiritually minded, not earthly minded, not fleshly minded. Oh God, I'm, I'm claiming a new Cadillac. You are being so short-sighted. Do you have any idea about how unreliable most Cadillacs are? Good grief. I'll drive the luxury for a while until everything goes wrong. My poor dad did that one time, oh, 30, 40 years ago. He bought a brand new Cadillac, and it was within three months the, the engine went out. 
And they said, well, because it's not under warranty, you bought it used. You know, you, the engine's $6,000. $6,000. My dad was on a fixed income at the time. And he, he poured all of his money into this little white Cadillac that he loved. I don't know why he loved that thing. And it, no sooner did he put a $6,000 engine, and three months later, the transmission went out of it. They said, well, it's another $6,000 now for the transmission. The car's only worth $5,000, but he just put a $6,000 engine in it and a six. Why? Because my dad loved Cadillacs. I said, Dad, you can't afford to be so short-sighted. I know you like your white leather interior. That's all cool, whatever. What you really need is a Toyota Corolla. They're ugly. They last forever, man. They just last forever. He wound up in a Toyota Corolla wagon, drove it for the next 10 years, and never had one single thing go wrong with it. Sometimes our will, we impress upon God and then ask him to bless it. Because we want it so bad in our flesh, we assume God does too. Can I tell you, that is seldom the case. Just because you want it so bad does not mean rubber stamp that this is what God wants for me. Is it your flesh that wants that? Or is it really God that wants that for you? Does it bind you more to the things of the flesh and the things of this earth? Or does it make you a more godly man or woman after God's own heart? Why do you want it? What's your motive? What's your purpose? Is it, in fact, the will of God? Or is it your will and you want to believe that it's God's will just because you want it so much. Ask, seek, and knock before you presume anything. Never say, well, God is leading me this way. God is, wants me to buy $1,000 worth of lottery tickets because he told me I'm going to win the lottery. There's also a proverb that says, a fool and his money are soon parted. You have to think more with the things that are in line with the Holy Spirit of God. He has blessed us, it says in verse 3, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, not fleshly, earthly blessing, not every carnal blessing. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But we are so concerned with the material things. And notice the phrase also, in Christ. That's mentioned 12 times in this mother of all run-on sentences. That phrase or, or one just like it, it refers to our, our position in Christ. This is your inheritance. This is what he has for you. It's not bound or limited to, to this earth. And starting in verse 4, you see the sovereignty of God really being emphasized. And it just makes me grin ear to ear. This is, this is your position as well as mine. For he, say he, he chose us before the creation of the world. Wow. Wow. To be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what God wants for us. He wants salvation for all that he has brought into this world. Over and over again, you're going to see this emphasis on God, what he has done, what he is doing now and is going to do in the future. Verse 5, he predestined us predestined us. Your destiny is greatness and glory. That's your destiny. Keep your eyes on the prize because it's not here in this world. We are strangers in this world. We're here for a short time doing the work and will of God, but passing through. 
This is not your eternal destination. He is the one who has chosen us. Verse 4, he chose us. Jesus said that same thing. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Speaking to his disciples, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. John 15 and verse 16 says, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name because he wants you equipped with the things that you need to do his will, not yours. Understand the context. This is not a name it and claim it verse. Lord, I'm just claiming a new Cadillac. I'm just claiming a a $10 million improvement in my economics. Uh, It's not going to happen. Whatever the will of God is. Jesus said, I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, spiritual fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, whatever you need to accomplish his purposes. Like Paul, he started out walking to the ends of the earth throughout the Roman Empire. No, think about that. No planes, no trains, no cars. He walked or sailed everywhere he went. And yet, without a cell phone, without a computer, he took the gospel to the ends of the earth, as far as the British Isles in Spain to the west and as far as what is today modern-day Russia in the east. One man, one man filled with the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Peter 2 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. That's who we are, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He knew that you'd say yes, but he knew that before time began. He had a foreknowledge of who would say yes. He didn't force himself upon you. I could be wrong. Did anybody put a gun to your head your head? And say, get saved or I'm going to blow you away. Anybody, that happened to anybody in here? You made the free will choice to do that. But know this, God chose you first. You just caught up. You caught up to God who wanted you saved all along. He predestined us. He goes on to say in verse 5, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Do you see the emphasis on God? It's all about God. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's all about Him. And He has a design for your life, a plan and a purpose. He reveals it to you one day at a time. You want to know what His five-year plan is. It's not going to tell you. It's not going to tell you. Jesus said, give no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry of its own. In other words, you worship God and you seek Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength today. Tomorrow, let's see what happens when the sun comes up. Then we'll trust Him all over again. But today, give Him all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Present yourself to Him a living sacrifice. Tomorrow, it's going to turn out just fine. Trust Him today. Work on that relationship today. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that in all things, say all things, all things God works together for the good of those that love Him who have called, been called according to His purpose. We have been called. He has purposes for us. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What's God doing? He's making you like Jesus. He's got the carrot peeler to you. 
And off comes the flesh. Well, this has got to go. Oh, you're stuck in pornography. Well, that's got to go. Oh, you got this addiction. Oh, that's got to go. You got this filthy language. Well, that's got to go. You got this selfish design of your own. Well, that's got to go. And that's what God is doing in your life and mine. He's peeling off the flesh because it's unprofitable. That's why this spiritual thing is always in Scripture referred to like spiritual circumcision. It's a putting off of flesh that serves no purpose. It's a perfect picture of circumcision. Our relationship with God, what's He doing? He's cutting off worthless flesh, the flesh that hinders you and serves no godly purpose. That's what God is doing. How does He do that? Often through trials. Often through things you don't understand that cause you to murmur, grumble, and complain. Of course, none of you do that. I'm talking about other people. But sometimes the, the things that are unpleasant in life cause us to adopt a secular mindset instead of a godly one. And so we murmur, grumble, and complain against what God is putting us through when, in fact, He's probably just trying to get our attention. Let Him. Let Him. Because of this promise, all things. Say it again, all things. All things work together for the good. Well, I don't understand that. He didn't ask you to understand it. That's your mistake. He didn't ask you to understand. He asked you to trust in the promise. Do you? That's where your faith grows. When you stand on the promises of God and lean not under your own understanding. In fact, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it is a sin for you to try to figure out what God is doing. It says this in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Feel free to write it down. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not upon your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him. And you know what? He will direct your path. But get first things first. Trust. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's a life that pleases God and nothing else does. Nothing else does. It's a simple thing. God has called you to a simple and childlike faith and trust in Him and in His promises, not your ability to figure it out. God's got this thing. He's got you. He got the whole world in His hands. Sounds like a Mitch Miller sing-along with the bouncing rubber ball, doesn't it? Most of you aren't old enough to remember that, but this is a sing-along service. But remember that God does have you there. It's like, you're in safe hands with Allstate. Allstate? I'm in good hands with God. That's where I am. I'm a child of God. He's got me right there. So Satan can't throw anything at me without God's expressed approval and permission. Look at, read the book of Job. Satan shows up and, and God starts bragging on his servant Job, godly man. And Job said, or Satan says, oh yeah, well let me at him for a season and he'll curse you to your face. In other words, let me test his faith and let's see if it holds up. Maybe Satan's testing you in the same way today. Maybe you're going through some really hard stuff that you can only get through by the power and strength of God. He's allowed it in your life so that you might learn to trust Him. Trust His promises, not trying to figure it all out yourself. You can't. Trust and obey. There is no other way to do that. You know, Jesus promised this whole idea of predestination that comes to us out of verse 5. In Revelation 3, 5, it says, Jesus says, To him who overcomes like them will be dressed in white, pure, spotless, 
That's how God sees us now. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angel. It suggests that everybody's name is already written in the Lamb's book of life, but if they die without accepting Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, the name is then blotted out. It's God's intention and will that everybody be saved. You may be his chosen mouthpiece. If you don't tell him about Jesus... Who will? Well, they may mock me, make fun of me, ridicule me. The one thing they, I guarantee you they can't do is crucify you like they did Jesus. You tell them about Jesus. Well, I'm in the workplace. They'll fire me if I say Jesus. You have rights in America. This is not, this is not a, some third world banana republic where you can't do yeah, You can mention Jesus anytime at all. He's your Lord. He is your Savior. God's not willing that any should perish. Second Peter 3, 9. God's not willing that any should perish. So it is our job to share that good news uh, with, with the world. Some will accept the invitation. Some will mock and ridicule. But they did the same to Jesus. Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. That's what our inheritance in Christ Jesus Verse 7, in Him, here's some of the, the stuff that we have because of our faith in Christ Jesus and what He's done for us. It says, in Him, first of all, we have redemption through His blood. We've been redeemed from our sins. We were slaves on the slave block to sin and self in a fallen world. And Jesus bought us, not with money, but His own blood. He purchased you and I. We are not our own. We've been bought with a great price. Scripture declares to us, we were once enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior towards God, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death and to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Colossians says, if you continue in your faith, there is our responsibility as well. Look at verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will. That is that we all be saved. Walk by the power of his Holy Spirit in dependence upon him. We, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And here's what God ultimately is doing in the universe. To put into effect when times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's God's ultimate purposes, and I promise you it will be realized. Someday Satan will be no more. You have to understand that life is temporary. It's filled with pain, hurt, and heartache, and only God is sufficient to see you through it all and to keep your joy intact as you keep your eyes on Him, loving Him, trusting Him. But this is God's ultimate purpose. Verse 10 for us, to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. What in the world is God doing? This is His ultimate ambition. In Him, verse 11, we were also chosen, yeehaw, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Put a note there, not yours. His will. He will bless it when you're pursuing His will, not your own. But don't make that common mistake of thinking, because I feel so strongly about it, it must be from God. And then you make your plans and ask God to bless them. 
what's the motives in doing what you do, asking what you ask, thinking the way that you think? He who works out everything, verse 11, in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. It glorifies God when we walk with him and pursue him on a daily basis in his word, in prayer, in fellowship, praising him, worshiping him, whether in the car, on the drive, uh, to work, or here at church on Wednesdays and Sundays. Verse 13, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, that's your part, you chose to believe Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Nobody else ever died for your sins but Jesus. Buddha didn't die for your sins. Muhammad, Confucius, nobody else died for your sins, only the Lord. And to prove that he was the Son of God, his heavenly Father raised him from the dead on the third day. That didn't happen to nobody else. So there's only one way to heaven, and his name's Jesus. People say, well, that's awful narrow. I don't care if it's narrow or not. I care if it's right. It's like saying, oh, I want to go to Pueblo. We'll take I-25 down to Pueblo. Well, I don't want to go that way. Then you don't want to go to Pueblo. People say, I want to go to heaven. Then you have to trust in Jesus Christ. Well, I don't want to trust in Jesus Christ. Then you don't want to go to heaven. It's plain and simple. Well, aren't there many paths to God? No. No. You want to get to Pueblo? Take I-25. You want to get to heaven? Trust in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. Confess your sins, repent of them, and embrace the forgiveness that He freely offers you. Because you don't get to heaven by accident. You certainly don't get there on your, your own righteousness. You don't get there. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card based on your own recognizance. You get into heaven because you trust in Jesus Christ and you've surrendered your life to Him. Is your life surrendered to Jesus Christ this morning? Would anybody else agree with you looking at your life? That's ultimately your testimony. It's not what you say you believe, it's how you act that defines what you really believe. You say you're a Christian, do you act like a Christian? Are we moving in that direction? Are we surrendered to His Lordship? Are we learning and growing? We will continue to make mistakes in this life. When we do, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He'll lift you up. It's really simple. It's not complicated. You just have to maintain that childlike perspective that your heavenly Father has a perfect will for you, and all He's asking you to do is do it. His way, in His time. Jesus said, if you want to be His disciple, you have to take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow him. What does that mean? You die to every desire that you have. You die to everything in this world. You die to sin. You die to self. Jesus said, do that every day. Pick up that cross. It's a call to come and die. That's what the call of the cross is, where I offer myself a living sacrifice to God. That's what is required of me, not just today or tomorrow or on Sundays, but every single day. Present yourself to him a living sacrifice. He will reveal then himself to you and his perfect will for your life. But if you're not seeking and asking and knocking, don't expect him to be doing much revealing. Does that just make sense? 
Christianity is not complicated. We live in a day and age of complication where others would have you to believe that knowing God's will is a difficult thing. It is not. It starts with a childlike trust and faith, humbling yourself before him, seeking him with all that is within you. Let God reveal himself to you. He loves you so much. All he wants is you happy, but you've got to do this his way, not yours. Don't fight him on this. Don't tell him what you want him to do. Make up your plans and then ask him to bless them. You find out what his will is for you. You know what his will is for all eternity. We just read that in verse 10. But on a daily basis, in practical application, how should I seek him? In his word, in prayer, in praise and worship, in surrender. Talk to him constantly. Keep that line of communication open. Verse 13, you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed in him, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Awesome. Who is a deposit guaranteeing. Don't you like that word? Guaranteeing you your future. You don't have to wonder, oh, I'm trusting in Jesus with all my heart. I wonder if I'm going to heaven. I hope I'm going to heaven. You can know with confident assurance that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We need to leave off there this morning for the, uh, unless, you, of course, you want to stick around till 4 or 5 this afternoon. We could then probably finish up the chapter. <laughs> but understand this, God has an ultimate purpose and he has a purpose for your life. You will only discover it. Everybody wants to be happy. Here's the, I'm trying to give you the keys right here. You seek God and his perfect will for your life. I guarantee you, you'll be in a better spot as far as your personal happiness and contentment go. I'm, I'm discouraged greatly by the, the people out there today where suicide is rampant amongst the young, amongst the soldiers that have come back and PTSD, when in fact all of our answers are found in Christ Jesus and everybody runs from that one answer as fast as they can. There is no other answer. You want to be happy? You want to be contented? You want to be fulfilled? You know, here's the good news. God wants that for you too. So stop doing you. Stop doing social media. It's not about you. It's about him. It's about surrender to him. Then, in that place, there's, that's where you find the love and the joy and the peace and the contentment. That's where you find the smile on your face that nobody can rob you of. That's where you get the grit to go through everything that Satan happens to. It is a supernatural thing. Why? Because I gave myself to God all over again with the start of every brand new day. And I rest in the fact that he's got this. He's got this knowing that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to verse. Stop trying to figure out what God's doing. He's got a plan and a purpose. It's all going to work out in the end, I promise you. You keep your eyes on the prize. You keep trusting in the Lord. Your faith will be rewarded. Let's make our plans in light of His Word because we've prayed about it, done more than what was made sense to us in the moment we didn't make our plans and ask God to bless him. We asked him to reveal his will to us, and then we embraced it when it came. Ah, that way he opens the doors instead of us taking a pry bar to him, telling him what our will is and asking his blessing upon it. He will never do that. Never do that. 
It may prosper for a season, but it will turn around and bite you in a way that you had never thought possible. God is concerned with the long term, not the short term. We, we tend to want immediate gratification, which Satan always tells us sin will produce. God's concerned with our e eternal happiness. God's perspective is eternal. Ours is temporal. That's why there is such popularity in health, wealth, and prosperity. False teaching, it promises immediate gratification of our fleshly desires in this life here and now. It's a lie from the pit of hell. If it was true, then Jesus would have been the richest person on the planet. You hear me? Don't you believe that lie? Don't you be coming to me with Joel Osteen's latest book going, ooh, I, I want a million-dollar mansion in Hawaii. I will burn that book for you. Bring that book to me, absolutely. Reading will result in pollution of the soul. You do not want that. The blessings that we have are spiritual, and they are in Christ. They are heavenly, kept for us in the heavenly realms. It's, it's not here on earth. All we need to do is to, to seek Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Your desire should be to know Him better, that's all. It's very simple. It's very, very childlike. Chapter 1, feel free to read ahead for next week's study. It's all about who we are in Christ Jesus and, and what we have in Christ Jesus. But understand this, for the Christian, everything revolves around your personal relationship with Jesus. Your personal relationship. We can get this so backwards sometimes. Well, I'm a Christian because somebody told me I'm a Christian. I one time asked a golfer, a friend of mine, I said, are you a Christian? He goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, how do you know that? You know what he said? With a straight face, he said, well, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm, I'm not Hindu. I'm not Jewish. So I guess I'm Christian by default. I just wanted to say, no, you're an idiot by default. <laughs> you know, what you, if you want to become a Christian, there are some steps you have to take to that. But let's not sell ourselves on some nonsensical idea that we live in a Christian country, so therefore I'm Christian. You're a Christian because you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins, ask Him to save you, and He does. And then you walk in that for the rest of your life. It's not a commitment one day or a baptism that takes place. It's every single day of the rest of your life walked out in faith. Then God blesses your socks off. It's amazing. Praise man, come on up. The rest of us, let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? God is good. Just say amen. amen. I love it, Lord. All you want to do is bless us. So to that end, would you draw us, each of us, as close to you as we've ever been in our lives. Reveal your perfect will to us, Lord. I, I'm so tired of, of making up my choices and forcing my will upon you and then asking you to bless it. I just want to rest in you. I just want to say, thy will be done, not mine, just like your son did in the garden. For him it meant the cross. It does for us today. We must every day pick up our cross daily, deny ourselves and follow after you. So we do that here and now, Lord, in this moment of, of surrender, in this moment really of celebration, in this moment where you've captured our hearts and caught our attention. Once again, would you fill us again with your Holy Spirit and renew in us the joy of our salvation? Would you remind us you got this? You've got everything under control, and everything in the whole universe will be brought under the headship of Jesus Christ someday soon. 
And until that day comes, until you transform our lowly bodies, until your kingdom is planted here on earth, Lord, we will keep our eyes on you. We will trust in your promises. We will follow after you. We will be quick to repent of our sins. And when we fall and stumble, we will be quick to pick each other up instead of criticize or let them just lay there. We will be the good Samaritans of our day and age. We love you with all of our heart and commit ourselves this morning into your hands, Father. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. He 